We'll return to our study of Luke this morning in Luke chapter 16. As I was preparing the sermon and praying who God would bring to church today, if you're visiting, you should know that we preach expositionally generally, which means we go line by line through a book of the Bible. And in that way, we hit the whole counsel of God's Word and not skip the controversial passages or camp out on the pastor's hobby horse. And we find ourselves on a difficult teaching this morning on marriage and divorce and remarriage. Just as a few weeks ago when Nathan preached on the sanctity of life, he started his sermon with grace. That's where we need to start this morning. If you've been through a divorce, you already have been through a terrible time. And you don't need this morning to relive the guilt, the shame, the condemnation, the rejection. You, you know why God hates divorce. You don't need someone standing up here to tell you why God hates divorce. But this is part of God's word and it's important that it's proclaimed and taught. And so, just as we sang this morning, His grace is enough. His, his grace is enough. The Bible says that if you are in Christ Jesus, there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we ended by singing that it's my joy to honor you. And so we'll start the sermon with God's grace and we'll end with what it means to honor God in our marriage. It won't be an exhaustive uh, sermon on marriage. Um, my Sunday night Bible study, it's the, used to be called the Young Married Bible Study, except we're not that young anymore. So it's the Married Couples Bible Study. Every fall we do a study on marriage. And nobody complains that we're doing yet another study on marriage. Because we need constant teaching on marriage. And how to prosper and glorify God with our marriages. And then in the spring, we, we do something else. And by the time fall rolls back around, we're ready for another teaching on marriage. Because life gets busy and we drift in our sinful hearts. Even though we're saved and redeemed and we're growing in Christ. Always tend to resort back to selfishness. And as we become selfish, that's when the marriage begins to suffer. I love what you heard with the um, trip teaching. Can't wait for that conference. He's absolutely right. It's a battle. It's a war. The battle's in the heart. And so we'll be spending a lot of time talking about the heart this morning. So my goals this morning are twofold. Number one, deal with this passage, this very short passage. Deal with it and show you who the original audience was. Who was Jesus originally teaching this passage to? And that will help us understand the meaning of the passage. And then secondly, deal with what the passage then means for us today. So let me read the passage, Luke 16, verses 16 to 18. Jesus says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, 
And everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And you might be saying, why on earth is verse 18 there? Well, what's verse 19 say? Maybe we get some elaboration. No, Jesus goes on to talk about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It almost looks like Luke uh, needed somewhere to put this verse, and he said, I'll just put it here. And yet we know that can't be. Dr. Luke, this learned man, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God is a God of order. It makes sense. It just doesn't appear at first blush to make sense. And yet at first blush, there's no mistaking what Jesus says here, and it leaves us feeling very uncomfortable. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Especially if you did divorce and you're remarried. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And you're squirming in your seat maybe right now. Ah, Maybe I never heard this passage before. Now I'm rethinking my second marriage. And does that mean I'm supposed to go back to my first marriage? And some people teach yes. Some people do teach yes. You're not going to hear that from the pulpit this morning. So I'll let you off the hook now. You move forward where you are at right now. You move forward where you're at by God's grace. And His love and His grace covers our sins. And we move forward doing the right thing today because today is always a good day for doing the right thing. Amen? Amen. We press on towards the prize putting our past behind us, and yet at the same time, learning from our past so we don't make the same mistakes over and over and over. You've heard from this pulpit that the way to interpret God's Word is through a system called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a fancy word for interpreting uh, a written text. And so we have said that the hermeneutic we use from this pulpit is to first look at the entire scope of the biblical record. Who is God? What is God's heart like? What is His will for His people? What is He doing in history redemptively? From Genesis to Revelation. And then we narrow in on certain topics and we do what's called systematic theology. Now, all theology should be biblical. We use the word biblical theology just to mean look at the whole Bible. And when we look at the whole Bible, this text will come into sharper focus. But there's another branch of theology called systematic theology where we take all the passages on a particular topic and systematically study it. And so systematic theology would also say, don't just grab this one verse and build a whole theology of marriage and divorce on one verse. 
Finally, we, we end with practical theology, and again, all theology should be practical, but we use the word practical, meaning now that you've done biblical theology and systematic theology, now how do you apply all this good theology into specific situations in life? And we've taught that it is human nature to start with practical theology and, and move backwards. In other words, I find myself in this difficult situation, in this case, a difficult situation in my marriage, and I want the difficulty to go away, and I have a pretty good idea in my mind of how to make the difficult situation go away, but I want to be a godly person, so I must then go find passages that back up what I've already decided in my mind. And if you do that, then now you are in authority over the Word of God. You're making the Word of God say what you already want it to say. Instead of coming to the Word of God, humbly saying, Lord, teach me your ways. Even if they don't make sense to me. Because I trust you and I love you and I see that you want good for me. So even if something doesn't sound at first blush good for me, or happy for me, I need to trust your word and not my emotions. And so now let's go back to the passage and look at it in context. What has been the context for this passage? We have seen how Jesus is confronting the religious leaders of the day the religious leaders who are teaching the Word of God, leading God's people, that they're legalistic, meaning that they keep the law in order to consider themselves righteous. Legalism. They keep the law in order to consider themselves righteous. Their righteousness is based on their works. They're they're legalistic. They're self-righteous. They've decided for themselves that I am a righteous person because I keep God's laws perfectly. And they'd convinced themselves it was their job to decide who was not keeping God's law perfectly. And they needed rebuke and condemnation. They also believed that The fact that they were prospering by the world's standards was proof that they were keeping God's law and God was happy with them. And all who were poor and downtrodden, that was proof that God was displeased with them because they were lawbreakers. So this is the ugly system into which our God of grace and mercy steps into in the person of Jesus Christ, to set the record straight. These people, though, had become so legalistic that they thought themselves so holy that when God showed up in the person of Jesus Christ, they didn't recognize God. In fact, they despised Jesus and judged His morality as lacking. Imagine that. Now, who on earth would think they are holier than God? Well, folks, that's our chief sin. 
we think we're better than God. We think we're smarter than God. We think we're holier than God. We think we know better than God. Christians are people who have come to the realization that this is me and this is horrible and I need God's mercy now. I cannot keep God's law perfectly. I have not kept God's law perfectly. And shame on me for thinking I have kept God's law. And in steps Jesus Christ with the glorious gospel of grace and says, I have kept the law perfectly for you. Put your faith in me. And my record will be transferred to your account. And your punishment, your due punishment for rebelling against God... I will take on my shoulders on the cross. And now we're free to keep God's law not out of pride and self-righteousness, but to say, thank you, God, for what you've done for me. Thank you, God. And, And now I trust that your law is what's best for me. And so I honor you. It's my joy to honor you by trusting In your word. So Jesus has to confront these these self-righteous, legalistic, religious leaders. And he does so in many different ways. But he starts using parables to confront them. And parables, as we have seen, teach in such a way that people who have hardened hearts and don't want to understand will completely miss the point of the parable. And people with soft hearts who do want to understand will say, Lord, teach me what this means. And so Jesus taught a parable about a a woman who had lost a coin and was excited when she found it. And he taught a parable about a shepherd who lost a sheep and he was excited when he found it. And then transitions to a father who lost a son and then was excited when he found his son. It's not that he misplaced his son, though I've done that once at the market. <laughs> right? How about you? <laughs> yeah. And you were excited when you found him. Except you probably blamed him and said, Don't you ever do that again. Now, this son was lost because he was a sinner and he didn't love the father, didn't care to be around his father could care less about loving his father. He was only thinking about himself. And he came to his senses and returned home and repented. And the father was excited. And he had another son who also hated his father. Only it was hard to tell. Because he stayed home and he kept his father's law. But his heart was far from his father. He couldn't be excited about the thing his father was excited about if you were truly loving your father you would be excited about the thing that makes him excited and so these pharisees were not excited that jesus was hanging out with sinners and leading them to repentance and salvation they were not excited about this it revealed that their hearts were far from god Jesus teaches a second parable after that one, a very strange parable that, again, seems to come out of left field about a shrewd manager of money. And he makes the parallel and he says, look, if you really had 
a heart for God and you were excited about what God was excited about, you would invest God's money into winning souls for eternity. That's how you'd be investing your money. Because kingdom living requires kingdom motives. Kingdom living requires kingdom motives. You need a new set of motives. Your old motives will not work in God's kingdom. You need a new set of motives. If God is excited about saving souls, I should be excited about that. That's a different motive than what they say the percentage of my income I was supposed to give at church. Because that's what a good Christian would do. That's a legalistic motive. And legalists, in the long run, will eventually not be able to keep the law because something will come along that their heart wants that the law won't let them have. And legalists always end up looking for loopholes in the law. So their heart can get what they want while still looking like law abiders on the outside. So I believe that is where this passage is coming from. That is where this passage is coming from. He's showing them a third way where their heart is far from God, even though on the outside it looks like they love to keep the law. So here's their dilemma. These legalists. I'm married, but I don't want to be married to this person anymore. I want that woman. But I can't call myself a law-abiding, righteous person if I go and have relations with that person because that would be adultery. Cut and dry, pretty clear, no way out of this one. How can my heart get this thing that I want that I think will make me happy and at the same time, though, keeping my righteous record perfect? I need a loophole. Well, these people knew the Old Testament. They're they're the experts in the law and they go to Deuteronomy and find a verse where Moses gave the children of God permission to, in some cases, to write a certificate of divorce. To write a certificate of divorce. There's my loophole. If I have legal grounds for pursuing a divorce, then my heart can have this thing that I wanted. Notice they're not addressing the heart. They're not addressing the heart. They're addressing the law. And how can I use the law to fulfill my desires? So let's go through Luke 16, 17, and then camp on 18. Point number one, the Old Testament law and prophet pointed to the king of the kingdom of God. This is why these two These three verses go together, even though they don't seem to go together. Jesus is telling these legalists, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And at this point, they'd be saying, Amen! 
The law and the prophets. We're all about the law and the prophets. That's euphemistic for the Old Testament. The law, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, the rest. Now we know there's also the wisdom literature in there. But they would call the Old Testament the law and the prophets. Then Jesus says, since that time, well, what time? Up until John. John who? John the Baptist. Who was John the Baptist? The one who came and proclaimed that the one that the law and the prophets was pointing to is here. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I baptize with water, he'll baptize with fire. I must decrease, he must increase. The law and the prophets were the shadow, he's the substance. Follow him. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. What is Jesus' point there? A lot of debate, debate among theologians. I think his point there is, look and see where everybody is taking all of their zeal and directing it towards Is it towards your teaching or is it towards my teaching? It's towards Jesus' teaching. The crowds are following him. The crowds are, they're trampling each other. And another way of translating this verse is that they're trying to take uh, their, by violence. Now we know Jesus isn't teaching that the way into the kingdom is through violent works. It's, It's the opposite. But it takes violence or forcing your way into it because the flesh doesn't want into the kingdom by grace. The flesh wants into the kingdom by works because then I get the credit. And I know I can decide how many works it takes to get in. You have to force your way into the kingdom by grace. It's a really weird paradox But I think you get it if you're a Christian. I have to fight against legalism and self-righteousness every day. And be reminded every day, I was saved by grace through faith. I was saved by grace through faith. I was saved by grace through faith. And this not of myself, so no man may boast. I must fight my flesh and receive the free gift of salvation. And now when I've received the free gift of salvation, I can then do works of the law to say thank you. I can be zealous for the law to say thank you, not zealous for the law to save myself. Point number two, though the law is not what gets you into the kingdom, it's not going to fail. Jesus didn't come and say, you know what, the law, no good, no good. Stop trying to follow the law, no good. I'm throwing out the Old Testament. 
That is not what Jesus... Look what he says. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. He's using hyperbole. He's saying not even a letter will... Not even the little stroke. In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he uses the term jot and tittle, which is really in Hebrew, yod, which is the smallest Hebrew letter. It's like a little apostrophe. And a, a tittle is, is a little piece hanging off of a Hebrew letter. A little tail hanging off of it. Don't think I'm coming to abolish the law. He's come to fulfill it. That's the point. We could not fulfill the law ourselves. Jesus fulfilled it for us so that we don't have to use the law to get us into heaven anymore. All that does is make us prideful, self-righteous, judgmental of others, comparing ourselves with other people. And of course, we're always going to pick the people that we're doing better than in the categories that we naturally do better in. And this tears apart humanity. It doesn't bring humanity together. It tears your marriage apart when you do this. It's not a competition to see who's the better Christian or who's doing more of the work or who's doing more of the heavy lifting or who's making more compromises. Jesus is rebuking legalism without abolishing the law because the law is good and it's good for many things. At least three of them are these three. Number one, it reveals to us that God is a holy God. Are there absolute moral laws in our universe? Yes or no? Or is it all man-made? Do we make up what's good and what's bad, what's right and wrong, or does it exist outside of us? It exists outside of us. It's got to, because if we decide what is good, then tomorrow we can decide that it's not good. And that's our postmodern relativistic world we find ourselves in that is crumbling. And so the law reveals to us that there is a lawgiver and there is no shifting shadow with him. The law is the law. Secondly, we use the law of God to bring order into a chaotic fallen world. Praise God for the law. Praise God for laws. Praise God for the most part we're a nation of laws. And the rule of law reigns. And there's punishment when laws are broken. It is God's common grace on humanity that he sets up human governments to form laws to bring order out of chaos. And in as much as human governments follow the law of God, you've got a good system, a good society. Never perfect, never utopia, not till Jesus comes back the second time and sets up his kingdom where we see a, a perfect kingdom. But boy, we're all yearning for one. What separates us from the non-Christians is we understand that man cannot set up utopia on his own. It's not going to happen. It is foolish of man to think that fallen man can set up a perfect kingdom without God. The third use of the law, Paul called a tutor. 
okay, so the law can't get me into heaven, which Paul previously thought that was the third use of the law. He was a legalistic Pharisee. In fact, he said he was a Pharisee par excellence. He was top in his class from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. As to the law, no one could bring an accusation against him. And then he said he met Christ and he considers all of that rubbish. Excrement is the word he uses. Excrement. But, he says, the law is still good. It's a tutor. If it were not for the law, I wouldn't know how ugly and selfish and sinful I really am. So the law is supposed to point me to God's grace. And as Christians, when we use the law in that third way, it makes us humble. It makes us yearning for God's grace. It makes us want to extend grace to one another. It keeps relationships together. It strives for redemption. And yet, sadly, when we use that third use of the law the way the Pharisees did to build ourselves up, to build up our record, to build up our resume, we no longer need God's grace. I don't need grace from you, so I'm not extending grace. And there's a legalist lurking in every heart in this room. And we must be on guard for it. Because... A self-righteous, legalistic heart will not keep the law out of love for God and others. That's our motivation for keeping the law. To love God and love others. But the self-righteous legalist keeps the law for himself. To make himself look good. To build himself up. To build myself up to the point where I'm in control and I get to judge other people and I get to live life on my terms. So now Jesus brings in an obvious example and he's pulling no punches here and he's not going to get into nuance even though nuance is required in the second half of the sermon. But he's doing this for effect, publicly. You go big. And you say to people who think they're righteous, but wanted to commit adultery, but knew committing adultery publicly was kind of pretty much ruined their reputation. Oh, never mind God being, God's name being maligned. Never mind how hurtful it would be to my spouse. They're not thinking about these things. They're thinking about their public reputation. Ah, a loophole. I can write a certificate of divorce. And then marry the woman I wanted to commit adultery with. And now it's not adultery. Problem solved. And Jesus is saying, look, if you did that, you're already committing adultery. You may have written a certificate of divorce, but God hasn't. But God hasn't. And you're tempting the person you left to go and commit adultery with somebody else. Now, this is a tough teaching again. And we're not here this morning 
to open up old wounds. Our divorce care ministry is in the business of helping heal those wounds. I'm not here to like rip the scab off this morning. But this passage is here and it must be preached. Divorce is a terrible thing and God hates divorce. Jesus is being compassionate here by saying, without pulling any punches, you need to stop and think before you proceed. You know, what's interesting to me is that the secular world has figured this out. Look at the divorce statistics 30, 40 years ago, and it was the elite secularists mainly who were getting divorced. And the elite secularists run our our schools, our universities, our media, and they've been telling our culture divorce is okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Now we have all this data on the fallout of divorce. And for decades, the blue-collar middle class and the poor were saying, well, I don't know, it's wrong. Pastor said it's wrong. Bible says it's wrong. I'm not going to get divorced. But they chipped away, chipped away, chipped away, chipped away, chipped away. Guess what the statistics are now? Guess who's not getting divorced as much now? The secular elites. Because they're like, oh, this, thing, this is devastating. Okay, they're not staying married to honor God, but they're like financially, emotionally, the, for the children. Oh, this is bad. It's cheaper to go to therapy. And now the divorce rate is out of control amongst the poor and the blue collar. Regular church going folks. And it's the elites who are like, no, I'd rather pay thousands of dollars to a marriage therapist. Or at least we're staying together till the kids are out of the house. None of these are the right motives for marriage or staying together. The Pharisees were just trying to avoid the natural consequences of public divorce, the, sh- the shame. But when they found out a way to get around the shame, what their heart true desire was came out. There was no desire to really honor God as a righteous, law-abiding person. That was all a facade. They really wanted to go commit adultery. Yet, thou shalt not commit adultery. So we'll scour the law of God not to see the heart of God, not to become closer to God, not to honor God, but to look for a loophole. And they found one. Moses said... You can write a certificate of divorce. So I believe that is why this passage appears in this section of Scripture. The immediate audience were not anyone asking about marriage and divorce, but self-righteous, legalistic Pharisees who had divorced and thought they were still righteous. Jesus has to pull off their fig leaves in a very public 
and abrupt way. The emperor is wearing no clothes. You're adulterers. Now, if you were divorced and you're remarried, he may not be pointing at you this morning and saying, the emperor's wearing no, no clothes. This is not the passage you go to to ask the nuanced questions. Because that's not what it was intended for in this setting. Jesus was being very black and white because these people who use nuance to keep up the facade of holiness and self-righteousness, you don't fight nuance with nuance. Right? Look at our president. (laughs) You just say it. I, I, I don't know about any of that. All I know is that ain't your wife. According to God, that ain't your wife. He's he's just being blunt. That's how you deal with people who aren't honestly wanting to deal with truth. Who aren't honestly wanting to know what is the best way to honor God with my marriage. They're not asking that. And they wouldn't ask Jesus. They don't care what his opinion is. Let's look at Matthew 19 and I'll show you that it doesn't matter what his opinion is. So if you go to Matthew 19, we get more teaching on marriage and divorce. While you're turning there, I just, again, want to reiterate, be careful not to rip this verse out of context. It's, it's not just about marriage. It, it's showing people who are self-righteous legalists that they're not as holy as they think they are. And I, and I, I give this warning because good and godly men theologians that we trust actually do take the position that this passage says exactly what you think it says for all contingencies. One of those theologians being John Piper. He has written a position paper and is convicted that the Scriptures teach that under no circumstances should someone ever remarry after divorce. Which is shocking to me. Because when you think of the original culture here, when women often got married at age 13 or 14, a 14-year-old woman gets married, maybe has a couple kids, her husband abandons her. Now what does she do with the rest of her life? In a culture where women couldn't work and support themselves. And Piper says, lean on God's grace that he will get you through it. I don't think that's what this passage is teaching. Now, I'm not saying it it may not be teaching that. Maybe it is. But I don't think you can say with certainty that that's what this passage teaches as an extension. At the same time, I never want to be guilty of undermining the clear teaching of God's Word. But I've always found that these harder passages are hard for a reason because they take a lot of time and prayer and humility 
and talking it out and searching the scriptures. And what it always boils down to is, what is the motive of the person asking the question? If you're looking for a way out, you'll find a way out. So instead of asking that question, maybe we should, not maybe, we should all start with, Lord, show me a a way to make it work. And if that means that I have to deal with the sin in my own heart, like Dr. Tripp said on the promo video, then let's start there. Had people say, when we've reached out, Jennifer and I, do you have any good resources on blended marriage? Why? You shouldn't have to teach on blended marriage. If they're divorced, they shouldn't get remarried. End of story. Problem solved. Well, yeah, in a perfect world. But we find ourselves in a fallen world. And Jesus knows we live in a fallen world. Which is where Matthew 19 comes from. So let's, let's look there. So the Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Look at the question. They're not asking, help me stay in my marriage. They want to know where Jesus places the loophole. Is it here or is it here? Is it any reason or only certain reasons? And we know from historical theology that there were two major camps, two major rabbis at this time. One rabbi taught you could divorce for any reason, including, and we have records of this, she was a bad cook. She ruined my laundry, etc., etc. She's let herself go. And so you could write a certificate of divorce. The other camp was uh, really you shouldn't be writing any certificate of divorce ever. So there was the anytime you want a divorce, go right ahead and you should never divorce. And you're like, are those the only two options? What if somebody is constantly cheating on the other person? What if somebody is beating or abusing the other person? Certainly the Bible's got to teach us about this because that's reality. That's life. So Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus is saying, let's do biblical theology, not start with practical theology. Who is God? Who is man? 
God made man. God made man in his image. God made them male and female. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a suitable helper. He gave man a suitable helper. And he said, let them leave mother and father and cling to one another. And the two shall become one. He's taking them through biblical theology to reset their minds and hearts on what is the important thing to ask here. If God has done this for his glory and for our good, then shouldn't you be working more hard to figure out how to keep this thing together than all the energy you guys have put into figuring out how to tear this thing apart and still save face. He's making sure their hearts are in the right place. Why don't you ask him a question about how do we keep this thing together? But that's not their question. And it says they came to him testing him. They're not even looking for an answer. They're not being teachable. They want Jesus to say the wrong thing and get it on public record. It's entrapment. Notice Jesus doesn't say it's all about your personal happiness. Because if that's the purpose of marriage, then no wonder marriages dissolve. You were personally happy when you fell in love, but I'm telling you that your motivation was not what you thought it was. Isn't that what the Bible's teaching us? That we don't know the motives of our own hearts. Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked. Who could know it? It deceives us. Lurking just beneath the surface of your happiness when you are engaged was a more devious, selfish motivation. I see an engaged couple here. <laughs> hey, welcome to church. <laughs> I'm attracted to this woman. You know why? Because she's beautiful. And she makes me feel really good about myself. And if I married her, I could feel really good about myself for a long, long time. Oh, he's handsome and he's debonair and he's a stud and that means that I'm a really important woman, that I'm a good woman, I'm an attractive woman. I need that affirmation that I am cherishable. And he's saying, I need that affirmation that I am worthy of respect. I walk into a room with this woman and all eyes are like, dang, man, he married up. You know, <laughs> like that guy. And then somewhere in the marriage, motivations change. Maybe the man finds out that, you know, a better way to earn respect is climbing the ladder of success at work. I'll get my affirmation from the workplace. I don't need it from her. And maybe a child comes along and she used to say, I just want to be a good wife. I just want to be a good wife. I just want to be a good wife because that's how I'll prove I'm a good person. And then baby comes along and never mind being a good wife. Now I'm going to put all my eggs in the I'm going to be a good mama basket. And now he's feeling neglected and she's feeling neglected. And she needs to hear from her husband, I'm cherished. But he's like, why would I cherish someone who disrespects me? And he needs to hear, I'm respected. And she says, how could I respect someone who doesn't cherish me? 
And round and round it goes until pretty soon I can't be happy with this person. I must find a new person to make me feel loved or respected. But nobody's asking that question amongst the Pharisees and religious leaders. They just want to know, let's cut to the chase. How can I get out of this thing and still save face? So they say, then why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Notice it's in old cap, all caps because it's quoting word for word the holy word of God. And Jesus said to them, the word incarnate says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. It's because of your hardened heart that Moses made an exception. Moses went to God and said, God, what do I do? These people are stubborn and stiff-necked. And they're willing to just tear apart that which you put together. And God said, yes, they're stubborn, stiff-necked people. Out of compassion and mercy, go ahead and write a certificate of divorce so that this woman will not be left high and dry or be stuck in a marriage while she watches her husband commit adultery or vice versa. So no, it's not the best way. But because of the hardness of their heart, we'll make this exception. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So there's what theologians call the exception clause. Immorality, the word is pornea, where we get pornography from in our language. There is a word for adultery in the Greek that Jesus doesn't use. He uses the word sexual immorality, which would include adultery but not limit it to adultery. For unrepentant sexual immorality, then there's an exception here. But notice that the allowance for divorce was because of hardness of heart. It's not a good thing, it's something to be avoided. That tells us in our marriages we need to work on our hearts before it gets to the place where we have to play the exception card. And notice that it's an exception, but it's not a command. You don't have to dissolve the marriage if there was sexual immorality because God's grace can cover even that. And it has, and I've seen it in people's marriages. And they have a beautiful, wonderful testimony because if God's forgiven me, By shedding his own blood on the cross, how can I hold this against another? I know it's hard. You've been betrayed. It hurts. I can't imagine the pain. And yet, God's grace is sufficient. Paul implores a believer to not divorce an unbelieving spouse even in the New Testament. Okay, well, what about another exception? So adultery is one. What if my spouse abandons the faith? What if my spouse abandons the faith? Can I, can I get out now? 
Paul says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. So this isn't the Lord's command, but this is Paul saying, if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her away. Why, Paul? That sounds horrible. How are we going to have this unequally yoked marriage? How's that going to work? Well, first of all, don't get unequally yoked. Don't get yourself into this situation. But if you find yourself in this situation, Paul says, I strongly exhort you and implore you to stay in that situation. Why, Paul? That sounds horrible. How am I going to be happy? Because you have new motivations as a Christian. Your motivation is the glory of God, and I want to see this person saved. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. She brings a sanctifying influence into his life. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. You can bring a sanctifying influence into the marriage, especially if there are children involved. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, then let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. So if he doesn't want to leave or she doesn't want to leave, then stay. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Kingdom living, kingdom motives. I want to see God glorified. I want to see people saved. Because that's what gets God excited. And praise God, I'm not in that situation in my own home. I can't imagine how hard it is for you. But trust God. He loves you. And he loves you so much that he's saying you will find more satisfaction and happiness in staying than going. Peter gives the same exhortation. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word... They may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Not as you hit them over the head with the Bible and tell them what it means to be a godly man. And why can't you be like all the godly husbands at the church? Yeah, that's going to bring them to church. I've never seen that strategy work out. The way God will use us in your life is maybe one day your, your husband will go, how could this woman love me like this? I have been so selfish and cruel. And she'll say, because of Jesus Christ and how kind he was to me when I was selfish and cruel. And so this is where we end. That kingdom living requires kingdom motives. Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? But I need happiness. I crave happiness. It's my right to be happy. You've been bought with a price, the precious blood of the Lamb. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Ephesians 5.31, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, There's Paul doing biblical theology. 
And he says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that refers to Christ and the church. Your marriage isn't about your personal happiness. It's about glorifying God and showing the world how Christ loves his bride, the church, laying down his life for her. So let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband because this makes God happy. Father, thank you for marriage. Thank you that we don't have to live this life alone. Thank you for your grace that covers a multitude of sins. Your love that covers a multitude of sins. Strengthen our marriages by changing our hearts away from selfishness and self-fulfillment and self-righteousness and towards grace and finding joy in honoring you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen.